Welcome to Surrey's Greener Future. In these podcasts, we will identify ways where each and every one of us can do our bit to make a difference. We will also keep you updated about a number of local projects supported by Surrey County Council, which are designed to improve the environment. I'm at the RHS Garden Bridgewater in Salford in Greater Manchester. It's a gusty, breezy day with a little bit of rain, but I've come to see the magnificent work that they're doing here due to open in the summer. There are many who think that the Royal Horticultural Society, or RHS as it's commonly known, with its Garden of Wisley, is a Southern or Surrey-based organisation. In fact, it was founded in 1804 as the Horticultural Society of London. The first garden was in Kensington, and this was followed by a garden on part of the Duke of Devonshire's estate in Chiswick. The Chiswick Garden was maintained until the beginning of the 20th century, when Sir Thomas Hanbury presented the Society with land at Wisley. To this day, the headquarters of the Society is based at Vincent Square in London. For many years, the major activities of the Society were the shows in the halls at Vincent Square, the Chelsea Flower Show and the Garden at Wisley. In 1988, Rosemore Garden in North Devon was given to the Society and in 1993 this was followed by Hyde Hall in Essex. In 2001, the RHS merged with the Northern Horticultural Society with their garden at Harlow Carr, just outside Harrogate. The RHS is a truly national organisation and its newest garden, with an area of over 150 acres on the edge of Salford, is its first urban garden. The garden, costing an estimated £33 million, is being created on the site of Worsley New Hall. Worsley New Hall itself was demolished in the 1940s. On one side the boundary is the M60, on another side the A572 which runs from Manchester to Lee, and to the south the Bridgewater Canal. This podcast attempts to tell the story of this truly amazing development. The Duke of Bridgewater's estate discovered that very wonderful plant called coal, and they started digging coal. Literally three miles that way, 400 coal. Dotted absolutely everywhere, there's a coal pit. You don't have to go very far to find coal pit lanes or coal pit or pit on the ordnance survey map. There's dozens and dozens of them. And they were all just little pits. You dug down, you dug what you could, you only went 50 foot down, then before it collapsed, you brought everybody out. Well, if you were lucky, you brought everybody out. Otherwise, you just buried them in with the next uh, one you dug beside it and filled that with that and so on. The problem was that they were very wet, which meant that they spent more time bucketing out water than they did bucketing out coal. This is not the coal mining of great big steam engines and pit heads and all the rest of it. This is the coal mine where the coal is brought out by women carrying baskets on their shoulders, climbing up ladders up the shaft. So it's not great in terms of condition. They thought the, the Duke's mines in the 
40s, had progressed to become some of the best minds in the country. And only 100 people had died in the three-year period in those mines. And that was considered to be good. So it's always been a pretty dangerous thing. The problem was the water. It was just uneconomic. It became a real problem. So the Duke had had a very poor education to start with. They didn't think he was going to inherit anything. So part of this really, his, his education was they suddenly realised that other people, family members, were dying off. And he was going to inherit. And so they sent him first to the place where you send everybody to get a very poor education, Eton. And then they sent him on a grand tour. And he went on a grand tour and he ended up in France. He did go to Italy and he bought a piece of sculpture in Italy which remained resolutely in its crate until I think the end of his life. He did, however, when he was in France, visit the Canal de Midi. The Canal de Midi was built in 1650. So that was very early on. So a hundred years after the Canal de Midi. And what he did see was barges on the Canal de Midi carrying coal. And one horse pulling 40 tonnes of coal. Now he had been carrying his coal into Manchester, which is where it was being used. Not, this was before the Industrial Revolution, before King Cotton. This was being burned in people's houses. But that was where it was used. But you had a horse, a pannier on its back, 100 weight of coal in one, 100 weight of coal in the other. It takes all day to get 10 miles into Manchester and back for 200 weight of coal. He thought, well, if I had a canal all the way into Manchester, I could get 30 or 40 tonnes of coal with one horse all the way into Manchester and back. And that's what happened. He met up with a chap called uh, James Brindley, who was a canal engineer who had been working close by in Salford on a place called Wet Earth Colliery, which, true to its name, was another wet, very wet colliery. And then his agent, a chap called John Gilbert, whose pub named after the road, uh, just down the road after him, he had this amazing idea. He said, right, well, rather than keep digging this coal out and putting it on the back of the boat, even if we had a canal, we've still got to then get it all to where we can put it onto the, onto the boat. Why don't we find somewhere that we can go in sideways? And that's what they did. They went in, intercepted all these mines, and in the same one fell swoop, drained all the water out, and put boats in. Put the coal onto boats. <coughs> boats all the way to Manchester. The price of coal literally halved overnight. Now that sounds really bad news if you're selling coal. But of course, he was doing 10 times, or 50, or 60 times more coal he was selling. And as a result of that, he became the richest person in the country. He died in 1804, and he died the richest person who had ever died. That's what they said. And he left the most complicated will ever written. He didn't have a family. Uh, he left all his money to a very distant cousin, and in, he died, and then all that money was left again, according to the world, to his youngest son, who had never expected to inherit anything. Very educated, very erudite man. He, was, he lived in Bridgewater House in London, which was very, very smart in, in those days. But he decided to come up and see what he'd inherited. And he took one look at Worsley, which was an industrial yard. And he said, I'm not going to come and live here. This is the most godforsaken, drunken, debauched place I've ever been. Why on earth would I come and live here? And there's no decent accommodation. They had the thing called Worsley Old Hall, 
That was being used as offices. The Duke had built Worsley Brick Hall, which was not a huge building, and was being lived in by his agent, and who was very reluctant to move out to allow Francis Levison Gower to move in. Francis Levison Gower, very early on after he inherited it, became the Earl of Eldmen. His wife, we think, possibly prevailed and said, look, well, what have we got that we need to do something about this? So they thought, well, we've got lots of money. So he said, right, OK, well, I'll, we'll come up here if we can improve it. So he said, I'll build a new house, Worsley New Hall, all gone now. He said, I'll build a courthouse, a new church. Yes, John's Gilbert Scott built the church for him. He built a new police house, the law and order. His wife had a children's home created and a coffee shop. And he really renewed the whole place. Schools, houses, and everything. And he spent his money very wisely, and he was very much loved as a result of that. Queen Victoria visited the house twice, in 1851 and 1857. Uh, she ride by boat uh, on the canal. One of the horses fell into the canal. <laughs> but Queen Victoria didn't notice, because it was a horrible day and the windows were all closed. She was escorted by gentlemen rowers of the Agecroft Rowing Club all the way up from Patrickoff stations. She planted a tree the second time. Royal Princess, Princess Caroline, planted an oak. Somewhere up there, there is the oak that Princess Caroline planted. But we had no idea which one it was. And they won't let me pick one out. <laughs> that was definitely it. There are six sort of contenders. And he also said, I'll have a garden, please. So he got a chap called Nesfield, who had been working at Kew, to design him a garden. Now we're going out, those of us are going out to the garden. Everyone think about swimming until the 1880s. At that state of mind, closed, and the terms of the will, which were very strict, came to an end, and the family took every opportunity to offload whatever they could, because they were still really living in London. They only came up here at weekends, odd weekends, and for a couple of three months of the year at the most were they living up here. They lived in their other estates most of the time. They weren't terribly interested. And the second and third Earls weren't interested at all. Third Earl was far more interested in horse racing, and he was the one who flogged off, all the, literally flogged the family silver wherever he could, including the, the famous first edition of Chaucer, which was only the third known copy that is now in this fabulous library in America, having been sold for millions of pounds, even in those days. It's a very w wondrous thing. Anyhow, everything went fine until the, the estate started to decline. The house was given over in the First World War as a Red Cross hospital, as many, many country houses were. And at the end of that, nobody wanted to know. The family didn't want the house, the family weren't interested, and nobody would buy it. So it remained fairly sort of just not being used, odd, odd military purposes, used in the Second World War, again, for rest and respite for, for soldiers. And then had, they had a fire, and it fell into such disrepute that it was demolished, sold and demolished in 1949. But the garden was slightly different. They stopped gardening the garden in 1919. So it's had 101 years now of total neglect. What we were lucky with, as the RHS, is that the wall garden complex, the outline of that stayed because it became a nursery garden and then a garden centre. So the, the basic outline of the walls, they stayed. They weren't in very good condition. We had to do a lot of work to improve them. But the basic outline was there, this fabulous wall garden. So we are not recreating a Victorian garden. We are creating a modern garden, a garden for today, within the skeleton of a Victorian garden. So that's the story of how the site came to the RHS.
frenar las cosas, sí. The garden is a building site at the current time, so everybody's being put into a high-vis visitor's jacket and given hard hats for the tour. Apparently there are 19 people on the tours this afternoon and they're running two tours, one just around the walled garden and the other one, which I think I shall be taking, includes the lake, which isn't quite as muddy today as it has been. I think there may be a warning in that. Uh, thanks so much for coming along today on, on a slightly blustery day. Um, we got on this morning and it was almost sunny for once. But hopefully once we're in the wall garden it will be a little bit calmer. So we're going to have a bit of a tour first. And then we're going to go to the volunteer base where there's tea and coffee and some biscuits at quarter past two. And Richard, who's the head of site, will come and meet us there and give us a bit of an update on uh, some work that's upcoming, getting ready for when we open in July, on uh, July 30th. So the group who's going to, going to come out all the way out to the lake with me, and the people are just going to go around the, the new beautiful wall garden because we are suddenly allowed inside it, because Ooh. you're all very nice people, <laughs> and you've got a special dispensation, are going to go with Janice, if that's okay with everybody. So please don't just wander off on your own, as you can see it is a very much an active building site and there are lots of vehicles and holes and other delights uh, we need to guide you away from. Brilliant. There's car parking for 850 cars here, 600 cars in the main car park and an overflow car park for the rest. They're having to raise part of the land near the entrance, plant conifer trees so that people using the main picnic area won't be blown away. This used to be a garden centre. This was where the garden centre building was, in front of that wall, and the car parking for the garden centre was here. These posts, these are reproductions of the original posts that we found laying around, and in very poor condition. Cast them in reinforced stone, I think that's rather, rather good. Wherever possible, we've reused bricks always had to buy in some new Belgian bricks to be the right size and the right texture. But we haven't had to buy in many, we have reused like 200,000 and we've got about a million original. The walls, you're now just inside the wall garden and that's the main bit that the RHS is concentrating on, the wall garden, because it's the biggest wall garden complex in Europe and it's 11 and a half acres of wall garden. When we go in in a minute, you'll go into the main wall garden and you will be quite surprised at how big it is. This is going to be our orchard garden. Northwest collection of apple trees, lots of pears, plums, all the fruits you can imagine. This area here, this is our chicken run. So we will be having our own chickens, whether or not I hope they will be able to use them in our cafe and restaurant because we're growing all our own vegetables. Just over there, there's a yew hedge encompassing a rose garden. This is something for you to remember for about 50 minutes time when you'll be quizzed on it. It should be pointed or whatever you call it with pitch. But it would seem nobody knows how to do it nowadays. So they'll be grouted with some form of, 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 of Nobody knows how to, how to pitch, put pitch between sets anymore. This was an old cafe for the garden centre 
which have been turned into our offices. Obviously, uh, our new offices will be mostly in the new welcome building. In the original garden, they had some horses to do the work, a couple of shah horses and a pony. The green container covered in white is the biomass production plant because all the greenhouses are going to be heated with the output of the biomass. In the building of the garden there's been an awful lot of community spirit and many volunteers from the local community and the RHS will be giving the residents of Salford free entry on Tuesdays for the first year. Part of their job was to keep that furnace underneath that chimney stoked, permanently burning what the estate's main crop was, coal. All their money was made from coal. And so they kept that burning because underneath here, and you'll see the entrance, are huge tunnels. All the way underneath, all the way across. You can walk around them. There's pictures of them. I lost somebody in them once. A man from the National Trust. And after that, we weren't allowed to go down there anymore. Um, that brought hot air through. This wall behind here is hollow. And that hot air warmed the potting sheds on this side and on the other side, the greenhouse. They could grow exotics, so they grew apricots. Pineapples was the big exotic. If you couldn't afford to buy a pineapple and you wanted a dinner party, you could hire one. And you could hire a pineapple and you had a pineapple stand and you put it in the middle of your table and at the end of whenever all your guests had gone and say, rich and gracious you are to have a pineapple, you had to sheepishly give it back to the greengrocer and give him tuppence at the end of the night. So. Now I did ask somebody the other day who said he was on the committee for trials as to whether or not when you're doing trials you have exactly the same soil in each bed and he went, hmm, I'm not sure, but I will find out. So I wondered if I had to grow things in different soils as part of trials or whether or not it's, just, it's a different, because we're only doing two varieties of hydrangea and surely one of the variables must be the soil. On July the 30th we're going to open to the public so we've had to import some ready-made height. This is called instant beach hedging. And it's grown in fields, in great big long troughs. And it's all numbered, so it appears to be as if it's been growing forever. And it all goes together and you've got the right number of brilliant stuff. So you started right at the beginning. Yeah, they, they, they recruited six tour guides when the site was a complete wilderness. And there were three members of staff and us. And we started showing people around early on, mostly local community groups to start with, because we wanted to make sure that the locals were all on site. This is a very major project uh, going on. And the site had been had, had one or two shall we say, not very good schemes put up for it to make sure that the local people... Hello, so we Hello. took lots of local people around and then gradually started, as the site developed more and more, we started just taking public. 
So how many volunteers have you got here now? There are a total of 700 volunteers on the books, but they don't all work at the same time. So some come on a weekly basis, some come on a project basis. The only ones are here, not all the time, but who are the six guides, because we continue to do tours every day of the week. And how many of the volunteers have come from the local community? I would say, depending on your, 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 your definition of local, the immediate local community, probably half, and the others will come from within 20-mile radius. But we do have people who've come you know, a fair distance, really. One of the guides lives 20 miles away. Three of us live within walking distance. Very lucky you'll be able to just wander down if you live within walking distance. Oh, it's great from my point of view. The only, the only sad thing is I can no longer come down on my bike because they've confined us to a car park to have to have all our hard hats and high visas and we need the cars. But normally I would come down on my bike. And you're looking forward to opening day? Mm, yes, inter- in- interesting prospect, looking forward to receiving God knows how many people. Uh, it's going to be wonderfully busy. And, yeah, we're ne- we've just had a meeting yesterday about what we're going to do after we open in terms of carrying on with doing tours. And we're all agreed that there will be a couple of tours every day. Because that isn't something that I've seen as a feature in other gardens. We like to think of Bridgewater as being very pioneering <laughs> and quite unique amongst the other gardens. It's going to be very, very different to all the other gardens. Well, thank you very much. Sure. Uh, my name's Richard Green, head of RHS Garden Bridgewater, and we're in the process of creating what will become the RHS's fifth garden up in Salford. We're at 154 acres right on the edge of the city, so we're in an hour's journey time of uh, more than 8 million people. So it, it really will be the RHS's first urban garden, and that enables us to do things that are perhaps slightly different to what people might expect uh, an RHS garden to look like. For instance, one of the key aspects of this project is that it will be very much a community-based garden. You will be able to come and buy a membership or pay your entry as you would do for any RHS garden, but also we are working very closely with a lot, with a lot of community groups. So we've, even though the garden's not open, we've been working with 22 different community groups out and about in Salford, school children elderly residents to create their own green spaces and then when the garden opens this summer we'll be welcoming them back in to work in our community spaces. We've got a well-being garden, community grow plots, a learning garden and we look to welcome um, more than 7,000 school children a year. So really an opportunity to get hands-on and hopefully we can inspire a new generation of gardeners in the north and throughout the country. And then at its centrepiece we've got an 11 and a half acre wall garden which is the largest walled garden that you'll be able to visit in the country when we're open. In fact, the entire Chelsea Flower Show footprint would sit within our walled garden. It's that big. And the two central spaces are the Kitchen Garden and the Paradise Garden, both designed by one award-winning landscape architects, Tom Stewart-Smith, the Paradise Garden, and Harris Book Studios, the, the Kitchen Garden. And they are the showpiece, world-class horticulture that you won't be able to see anywhere else in this region uh, and as of the summertime um, people will be able to come and see them at Bridgewater. And is it on schedule? It is, we've got a great team here working very hard day in day out and through into the evening on, on, on many occasions but yes we're on, on track uh, despite the weather, despite the very wet weather we've had um, throughout the winter uh, and we're all set to open in the summer. 
It used to be said of Harlow Carr that if anything could grow there, it would grow anywhere in Britain. Is it a similar situation here with the weather? Yeah, I, th- I think we I think we probably beat Harlow Car for rainfall actually, and we've got the prevailing westerly wind sweeping in off the uh, Atlantic. So uh, yeah, we we might we might take that crown from them. I, I suspect. <laughs> well, thank you very much, and I hope it all goes well. You're welcome. One of the interesting facts about the garden is that in the walled garden there will be a well-being garden and work that is being done on that at the current time is being done by 40 Salford residents who have been prescribed by their general practitioners to have gardening as part of their cure. We have got rather a lot of rhododendrons. Some of these are the good rhododendrons. We've spent a lot of time and a lot of effort with volunteers getting rid of the podicum but we are keeping the good stuff. Now somebody has just given us a collection of rhododendrons which we've started planting out round here. They're the good ones, the specimens. They're building a very large play area here, but it will be a dirty play area where you can come along and play in mud in the woodlands. And they're building a fence at the current time out of roots, out of hazel, out of branches from trees that have fallen down. Everything is natural, everything is being reused. Quite spectacular of these trees that you can see from here there wouldn't be one tree that you can see in sight now that would have been here in the Victorian garden. All this is just wild growth in the last hundred years. And I will prove that to you in the next few metres. You've had a clue already to what it might be. There was another one just up there. So there are a pair of them. They're both circular and they were rose gardens. Those rose gardens were surrounded by a three-foot-high yew hedge, and that's what happens to a three-foot-high yew hedge if you lose your clippers. So you can now see, bearing in mind, yew is very slow-growing, even though it's growing fast, it's taller here because they're close together, you can now get your head around the fact that there would have been nothing else here. None of those trees, not one of those trees you can see out there would have been here. So it's all just woodland growth over the last hundred years. Trees have died, trees have come, mostly the dreaded sycamore. Sycamores are the most successful all the trees. If, you, if it falls onto fertile soil, 90% of sycamore seeds will sprout. So this will be left as a curiosity. And then, but it's only going to be accessible by people on tours of the historic site. We're now on the Fountain Terrace. This is the drawing that, that Nesfield gave to the Earl and said, you give me lots of money, I'll create you a wonderful garden. And you are now standing exactly where that statue failed to materialise because there wasn't quite enough money. But that is the base of that fountain there. You can see it quite clearly. And that's how it was when it was built. Now, one thing you will notice, there are no trees. But it was just part air planting, all of this. No trees at all. All of that, everything, all cell sets, all grow. Up there, another fountain terrace, then another terrace, then the house terrace. So there were six terraces in all, and another terrace behind the house. And of course, that's where they sat, looking over the Cheshire Plain. They'd made all their money from coal, so they didn't look that way, which was Manchester and Salford, and which was black. They didn't look that way, because that was Bolton, and that was black. They didn't look that way because that was Lee and Boothstown and that was grey. 
but they looked that way because that was Cheshire and the South and Sunshine. The only thing was that every so often a little chuff of smoke came up and reminded them because the Manchester to Liverpool railway line was built in 1830 just across on the horizon. And so it kept reminding them where their coal was going to. It's Tuesday today, and on Friday, the lake in front of me was completely empty. They put the plug back in, and we've had a weekend of heavy rain. You can see the effect it's had on it. It has been suggested that it will take a year and a half for the lake to fill, but if the weather stays as we've had recently, I think they might beat that target. In the old days, it used to be filled using an aqueduct that ran from a reservoir a few miles up the road. But of course, modern roads and things like that have meant that the aqueduct is no longer available. Parts of the site used to be used by the scouts as a scout camping area. The nursery that ran this site for many years let them come in here. The hope was that they would actually do some looking after the wood. They cleared a few areas for tents and also moved all these stones. Quite amazing. Some way over half a tonne. Things. All the big topiary beaches came from Belgium. The topiary dunes over there, they also came from Belgium. They're more than 30 years old. No British nursery will grow stuff for that length of time before selling it. And all the beaches came from Belgium as well. The Chinese stream doesn't join the two lakes because that lake is 10 foot higher than this. And you can't join them, otherwise that one would just empty out into this one. So the stream will actually be artificially circulated. It will be running downhill from there to here, but then the water will be pumped back up. Beyond the new lake, which is slowly filling with water, you can see the slip road from the M60. We really are that close to the motorway. The pavilion and various other buildings all reflect the fact that on the end of the garden cottage, we've got a hexagonal room and so we're trying to reflect all the time historical past we'll show you a bit more of that in a minute the kitchen garden or produce garden you can see from the size of it it's going to be huge herbs we will grow everything we need in our own kitchens it's going to be ours and woody herbs at this end leafy herbs at the far end and then obviously a lot of this is going to be annual planting the towers reflect the chimney and there for climbers, hops being one of the principal ones, although I'm told we're not going to have our own brewery. These um, areas with the black plastic around them, those are for growing water cress and other water-based plants. They're also acting as emergency reservoirs. There is underneath here all drainage and all infrastructure and irrigation, but just in case we ever have a really, really, really dry summer. We're going to have extra emergency watering stuff. The Victorians stored their water on that wall. There are tanks between, underneath the wall and between the two gardens where they kept their water. The patterns that you've got here reflect the underground canal network and the inclined plane, which is why you've got this slightly odd slope between the two. We're trying all the time to be as historically reflective 
as we possibly can because it's it's important to us. So this is the bee and butterfly garden. This is being planted up specifically with uh, stuff for bees and butterflies. We obviously want to attract as many pollinators as we can. We will be having beehives, probably not initially because we don't think there's enough flowers of food for them initially. But obviously after the first year when we've got more established plants, then we will be having beehives as well and producing honey. Not for sale, I gather. Only because we can't produce enough for sale. <laughs> Remember the yew hedge in the rose garden? Well, that's our yew hedge and that's our circular rose garden. But we'll promise to keep it trimmed. This is the other half of the yew hedge, but the soil isn't quite ready yet. And this is the picnic area, and there will be a pop-up coffee shop. Only decided this week. Water will be harvested from the roof of the Welcome Building for use in the gardens and also for use for all the facilities here. The amazing thing is the scale on which everything is being done. It must be a dream for people working here. Normally you'd never see this amount of plants and trees being put in. That's the only tree left over from the old days. That was left over from the garden because it got too big to sell, too big to move. The strange looking trees with a lot of high windage are Iranian ironwood and they're going to be pleached into a box in the sky which in a few years' time will look fantastic. I thank Janice and Royston, our RHS volunteer guides, for explaining everything so well. The RHS for organising the tours, and you for listening. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio as part of Surrey's Greener Future programme. Please use this material to help inform others.